our great God, creator and sustainer of the whole universe, we're here to praise you for your greatness, your goodness, your love, most of all for the wonderful plan of salvation that you've given us through Jesus. Bless this gathering, I pray. This is a convocation of very special people. We are all ten talent servants, and we want to invest our lives, our time, our education and achievements to heal the suffering, save the lost, and to hasten your return. May we see you more clearly today and what you would have each one of us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm wanting to talk about organization. Uh, the, uh, and I, I really want to stress this. Uh, organization is really important to the success of any endeavor. And uh, uh, this will become apparent as we go along. Uh, the primary thing is the primary thing. As Stephen Covey says, first thing should be first. So the primary thing is most important. It's the predominant thing. It's the main thing. It's the principal approach. It's the number one thing. We need to be clear on what the number one things are. Then there are secondary things, and they result from something primary. They come after the primary. They are an adjuvant, if you please, to the primary. And then we have tertiary things, and that's not to diminish. Tertiary things are very important, but they are the third order of things. And now just to refresh your minds, because you know this, I'm going to take a look at primary, secondary, and tertiary institutions. The primary institutions are actually the most important institutions because they interface with the public. And in a primary institution, relationships are very important. Uh, primary institutions are very broad in their scope, and they focus on the whole person. Now, secondary institutions interface with primary institutions. And in the medical setting, the clients of secondary institutions, if you think about it, are actually not patients. They are actually doctors. Doctors in primary care refer people into specialists. And in secondary institutions, organ systems are more important uh, because you're focusing in on a heart problem, perhaps a mitral valve in a person that has pulmonary fibrosis, uh, but you're focused on an organ. And secondary institutions don't necessarily focus on the whole person. Then you have tertiary institutions, which are the very sophisticated academic centers, and they interface with your secondary centers. And uh, these people are experts in very complicated cases, and very often their clients are specialists. And in tertiary institutions, cellular dynamics are important, and molecular components come into play. And what is graphed here is some of the chemokine receptors on white blood cells and how complicated uh, that can be. Now let's take this primary, secondary, and tertiary concept and apply it to the Seventh-day Adventist church. And the primary institution is the local church. Your secondary institution is your conference office, and your tertiary institution 
is the uh, union conference or the division or the general conference. And, but the local church is the primary institution and it is the primary institution for the gospel. And I want to really stress this for a moment. The, it is the primary institution for God's grace. You get baptized. You don't get baptized into hospitals or offices. You get baptized into the church. And the church is the Christian's home. Christians don't have any other home. The church is the Christian's home. And a, a few word slides now. The church is the channel through which the Lord works to save those who are perishing with sin. So do we want to save the perishing? Yes, we do. Where is that done? That's done in the church and by the church. Christ is the foundation and the church is the channel of communication. The church is the primary institution. The church is a light to the world. God has made his church on earth a channel of light and through it, he communicates his purpose and his will. Now, just to illustrate for you how important this primary uh, institution is, you recall the calling of Paul, Saul at the time. He got knocked off his horse by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, oh, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then Paul asked him the question, what do you want me to do? Jesus did not tell him. Jesus said, go into the city and you will be told. He put Saul in touch with his church because after he went to heaven, the church became the institution of communication. Another illustration, Cornelius is praying, a devout Italian officer. And an angel comes down and says, hey, we've heard your prayer. And the angel came from heaven. The angel could have explained everything to Cornelius and his family. But the angel said, no, there is a more important institution than angels. And that is Christ's church on earth. I want you to send over to Joppa and get Peter and have him come and explain things to you. And, uh, and so this just illustrates to you how primary the church really is. And in order that men may understand divine truth, there must be a channel through which it'll come to the world. The Savior has constituted the church that channel. For he has said, you are the light of the world. And uh, I, I like this one because we've talked a little bit uh, so far about how weak the church is in certain dimensions. And this quote from Acts of the Apostles says, enfeebled and defective as it may appear, the church is the one object upon which God bestows in a special sense his supreme regard. It is the theater of his grace. So if you want more of God's grace, where do you go? You go to the theater of his grace in which he delights to reveal his power to transform hearts. We want to transform hearts. Can that occur in the hospital? Yes. Can it occur in your office? Yes. But it, the primary institution that dispenses the power to transform lives is the church. 
And I think that's just an important point. We sometimes dwell on the weak and, and uh, defective as it appears and say there might be a better way to do it. So now that we've discussed primary, secondary, and tertiary institutions, let's talk a little bit about health evangelism. What is the organized structure of health evangelism? And I'm gonna look at uh, institutions, health evangelism institutions, health evangelism personnel, and health evangelism activities. And we're gonna look first at institutions. So the local church is the primary institution for health evangelism. We need to be very clear on that. And just notice these quotes, and some of them uh, were read to us last night. The Lord gave me light that in every place where a church was established, medical missionary work was to be done. So the church is the primary institution. There should be medical missionary work done in every church. That's just part of it. It just has to be done. And uh, so every place a church is established, there should be medical missionary work that is done. And it would very much look like that. It needs to be done in every church. And every church, here it says, the medical missionary work is to occupy its rightful place as it ever should have in every church of our land. So if you're a health evangelist, I think one of the questions that you need to be asking yourself is how can I get my church to do that? And shouldn't my church be doing this? Because it is supposed to be connected with every church in our land, in every church. There is a message regarding health reform to be born in every church. And churches are to be organized Churches are to be organized, and in no case are these churches to divorce themselves from medical missionary work. So is it becoming clear that the primary institution for health evangelism is not a hospital, and it's not your office, it is the local church? The medical missionary work should be a part of the work of every church in our land. Disconnected from the church, it would soon become a strange medley of disorganized atoms. We don't realize that in that last sentence, when it says disconnected from the church, that's not speaking about the Seventh-day Adventist church. The subject in the previous sentence was what? In every church in our land. So we could rewrite this this way and say the medical missionary works to be a part of the work of every church in our land disconnected from every local church, it would soon become a strange medley of disorganized atoms. And it would look like this. Let's do this. No, let's do that. So this institution does this. This institution does this. This doctor does this. This health educator does that. And it ends up looking like this. Or it ends up looking like this. And apologies to those of you who like modern art, but to... A scientific mind, this is nothing but disorganized atoms. And uh, so the conclusion that I hope you have been able to draw from this is that the primary institution for health evangelism is the local church. It interfaces with the public. Its clients are individuals. Relationships are important. And it needs to be very broad in scope. 
So what are the secondary institutions? Well, you should see your office as being a secondary institution. And we have a lot of this kind of secondary institution as well. And all of them are struggling. They all have a very hard time. And so live-in centers and office practices are the secondary institutions. The, their primary client should be local churches where 95% of the health evangelism should take place. And so your office and these other institutions are all secondary institutions, and you should refer complicated cases to them. So if you have 15 churches that are conducting health evangelism programs, you'll always find somebody that's not making it. They need to get out of their environment. And so what do you do? You send them to a better living center for two weeks or a month, and they come back totally reformed. And, or if you have a person in your health evangelism program that's very short of breath, you send them to the doctor's office and let the doctor listen to his heart and find out that he has mitral valve prolapse and mitral regurgitation and perhaps pulmonary fibrosis, as we heard about last night. And uh, so the main problem today, as I see it, is that secondary institutions are trying to be primary institutions. Doesn't work well that way. And I'm gonna outline the problems that occur. Number one, your public interface is too small. And your office is smaller than the church building and its membership. And these live-in institutions try to compensate for a small interface by doing nationwide recruitment. And so if you're Weimar, you'll accept patients from any state in the union because you need them to stay afloat and you advertise far and wide. But then you have Wildwood or Uchi Pines. They're competing for the very same individual. If you had a church inserted between you and the public, your interface would be a thousand times bigger. Let them do all the primary work. Let them introduce people to Jesus. Let them teach people to read their Bible. Let them learn how to eat right and to exercise right. And when you run across the difficult case, send the difficult case to the live-in center. And so the problem when secondary institutions try to be primary is that you alienate local churches. And I'll give you a solid example. It's the Philadelphia Better Living Center which no longer exists. It was a lovely building, uh, an old mansion on five acres of wooded property in, right in the heart of Philadelphia. And it was surrounded by seven Seventh-day Adventist churches. And uh, Vincent Gardner and his wife were the primary health evangelist there. He's a medical doctor. And uh, I'm sure he's since passed away. Uh, but uh, they offered a lot of programs to the public, and they were trying to be a primary institution. And they recruited members from other churches in the city of Philadelphia. And as I talked to the pastors in Philadelphia, not one of them liked the Philadelphia Better Living Center. And the reason they didn't like it was because they lost members that used to be more active in the church. Now they're active over in the Better Living Center. And as a result, 
uh, the Ph Philadelphia Better Living Center had to close its doors after a while. And I'll maintain that there was nothing wrong with the facility, the location, the message, or the messengers, except it was a secondary institution trying to be a primary institution, and it failed for that reason. You also alienate local churches, uh, and let me just uh, back up and dwell there for a second. Uh, I have found that very often local churches in the vicinity of a better living center don't like the better living center because those people eat better than we do, and when they're here, we feel shamed. And sometimes they dress differently than we do. And, and so whenever they're around, we're, we're kind of on edge and on our toes uh, because we're not sure what they're going to say or, or what's, what's going to happen. And I, I think that that is sad. And if you're a secondary institution trying to be a primary one, you're going to be ignored by the denomination. Uh, the church is going, the first thing the church is always going to ask you is how many baptisms did you have? And as you see later in the program, we have other things we can count that show that people are taking steps toward baptism. Uh, but the truth is, uh, nobody is baptized into a better living center, and nobody's baptized into your office, nobody is baptized into the hospital. And so, you know, that's kind of a silly question to say how many baptisms are there. And a problem is that evangelism uh, becomes transient. Now, this may not be so much for your office, but it's this way for better living centers because they recruit from all over the country. They come there. While they're there, they have a rich spiritual experience, but they send them back home. They'll send them an alumni newsletter, but they're basically lost. And so the evangelism that's done in many Betty Living Centers is really easy come, easy go. And you're not terribly concerned. And uh, I will address how to solve this a little later on, but there is a very simple way that you can take care of it. And a problem trying to be primary is that you're not having your relationships in the primary place. You're not having them in the church. So your client relationships occur outside of the church. And number six, many of your contacts uh, end up being secular. And we kind of explored some last night and this morning how to avoid that. The other problem is that there's no meaningful health evangelism data. Uh, and by that I mean how many clients learn to pray. Now in the programs that I conduct, I count prayers. And I have people count them. It may sound kind of legalistic, but I can tell you at the end of the program how many prayers were offered by the non-Adventists who came here. I can tell you how many of them are reading their Bible. And I can tell you how many of them made friends with Seventh Adventist people and are calling them as friends on a regular basis. And so if you're going to do health evangelism, you need to do it in a proper way and uh, count how many people are learning to pray, how many clients are learning to study the Bible, and how many clients are making friends with church members other than you. And uh, another problem that the church would accuse larger instances, now if you're in private practice, they're not going to accuse you of this, but they'll do it regularly for other secondary institutions. They'll say you're diverting church income to your own institutions. If you weren't there, they'd be giving that money to the church. And so there's kind of a bit of resentment there. And the church is very good at two things. We count baptisms and we count money. And 
And they're very sensitive on both, on both issues. So what should secondary health evangelism institutions be doing? Well, stop trying to be a primary institution. Uh, develop a leadership interface with local churches. And I'll expand a little more on these things a little later on. And foster primary health evangelism activities in local churches. Establish a referral system to receive difficult clients from local churches. And channel all inquiries through local churches. And let me just kind of stress that because I went over it kind of fast. And let's say that somebody wants to come to your live-in institution. And they're calling you from uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. You can say, ah, yes, we're, we're looking forward to have you coming out here to Weimar or coming to the Black Hills or wherever. And we have a representative right there in Raleigh. Quickly send a packet, an enrollment packet, to a church member, a church member, doesn't have to be the whole church, who is sympathetic with health evangelism that you identify in that church. Let them go to that person's house. Say, I understand you're interested in going to Weimar. Well, here is a sign-up package. This will tell you all about it and what dates should be available to let them set it up. And then what happens is uh, once you have established that, uh, then what you do is you channel all inquiries through local churches and send that church member a progress report on how that client is doing at the live-in center. And then when it's said and done, establish follow-up activities in the local church. So you can say, once you've been to this institution, we are so proud of your progress, we want to keep track of you for a year. And so we're going to have our representative in Raleigh call on you on a regular basis to help you reinforce the new behaviors that you've acquired, and they're going to send this information back to us so we can keep this in our database and we can just keep track of how well we're doing and how things are coming along. And eventually, once you get all of these churches together, you can recruit them into a network and help them keep accurate statistics. And uh, if a Bible study interest comes up, let the local church take care of that. If somebody expresses an interest in baptism, let them be baptized into the local church. So what about tertiary institutions? Who are the tertiary institutions for health evangelism? Well, amen is one. Uh, and tertiary institutions are associations of secondary institutions. And so here, this, all of you have offices or better living centers. And so all of you are secondary providers, and AMEN provides a format in which you can exchange information, exchange notes, and learn the latest things. And there's a great need for tertiary institutions. At one time, I was the uh, chairman of the Texas Interagency Council on Smoking and Health. And it was a very interesting organization, the Cancer Society was a member, the Lung Association was a member, the Heart Association was a member, and there were several other private things. And it, it became a, a place where these voluntary agencies could show and tell what they were doing and could encourage one another. And there's a distinct place for associations of secondary institutions. So what should tertiary institutions do? 
And uh, I just added these two slides this morning. Uh, in, in my book, which you'll learn about a little later on uh, here, uh, I have assigned these tertiary institution tasks to the North American Division. And they haven't done anything about it. And so it's time for another responsible organization to take up these tasks. So many of the tasks that I have outlined in the book for the church to do, amen could do. And so these are some of the specific things that I would challenge you to do uh, throughout the coming year. One is to def define the essential elements of health evangelism. What are the pieces that you need to make a whole? I think you should do a survey of all existing programs because some of them are just scientific. Now they've got good information, but information doesn't change behavior. Insight doesn't change behavior. God changes behavior. And you need to point to Jesus as the one who can save you and help you with your new behavior. And so if you have a health an education program that doesn't contain an evangelistic component, then you don't want to endorse that one. And so somebody has to survey the programs that are out there and make some kind of a judgment as to whether or not they fit well into God's work. And you have the skill and the talent and the ability to do that here. What you ought to do then is rank and recommend programs by the ones that fit most closely the health evangelism model, and then encourage churches to adapt those. Or you could commission the development of new activities that meet the criteria. What we need really right now, and I'm not tooting my horn for best way because it needs to be improved, but the number one program that's needed in the United States and the world today is a good program on obesity management. If you think about it, we have a lot of really effective methods for treating obesity. We have surgery and it works. We have pills. Pills are pretty good. We have commercial programs. They all work. We have books. There's probably a dozen new books. Keto diet is really big right now, isn't it? But in spite of public health pronouncements, books, surgeries, pills, and everything, the nation is getting fatter and fatter. Now, I've got another whole talk just on obesity, but I can't give it today. But obesity is one of the signs of the close coming of the Lord's second coming. Obesity was a problem before the flood. It was a problem in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Mrs. White says that the indulgence of appetite is the number one sin of society today. Well, if you indulge your appetite, what's going to happen? You're going to end up gaining weight. Uh, so, and the church... In the smoking epidemic, we came up with a five-day plan, but what we need is a health evangelism program for obesity, and I, I think it would be very effective. I have one that I use called Best Way, and people are w welcome to use it, uh, but it really needs uh, the touch of a uh, graphics individual, and uh, some of you scientists need to take a look at it as well. Uh, you need to establish a database in the cloud. I collect all the data uh, on everybody every week and it goes into a big database. Then you need to analyze it to see whether or not things are working good. And I can tell you that in my weight management program, the people who pray lose more weight. 
The people who study their Bible lose more weight. The people who contact their Seventh-day Adventist helpers lose more weight. Of course, they lose more weight if they eat less, too. And they, they lose more weight if they exercise and do their walking. They lose more weight if they don't eat snacks between meals. And they lose more weight if they keep the portions small at each meal. And so all of those are important elements, but there are evangelistic components in the program, and we have demonstrated that adding evangelistic components enhances the success of the program. Now, that's encouraging news, and and the church could certainly use that. And so what you do is you also need to qualify health evangelism providers We have a lot of people in our church that are interested in health, and I've got a couple of uh, slides on that coming up in just a little bit. But we need to make sure that the people that are doing health evangelism are doing it right. And I think that that would be a good uh, system for a tertiary institution license uh, participating primary institutions. This is a AMEN certified health evangelism church. This is an AMEN certified health evangelism church. And eventually the public will want to know, I want to go to a certified AMEN public evangelism program and I want to find a church like that. Then what you do is establish a network of primary institutions. So let's talk about personnel, primary, secondary, and tertiary personnel. Who is the primary practitioner? It is not you. It is the church member. We have come to a time when every member of the church needs to take hold of medical missionary work. Another one. We have come to a time when every member of the church should take hold of medical missionary work. We have come to a time when every member of the church should take hold of medical missionary work. No church can flourish unless its members are workers. They need to overcome their own defects and encourage others to overcome. This I have found consistently that the helpers that I recruit to help me in my program are the ones whose lives are bettered by it just as much as the people who come. And that's an important thing. As a matter of fact, church members are so important that in the programs that I conduct, I limit the public enrollment to a proportion of church members who are willing to help. I like the ratio of three to one. So if we have 10 church members that are going to help, I'll limit the enrollment to 30. And they'll say, well, we could get 60 people in here. I'd say, yes, but we can't get close to 60 people. We don't want to invite more people than we can get close to. And this is an important evangelistic concept. Don't burn territory by conducting programs for people that you can't service with a personal touch. And that personal touch doesn't come from you. You're a secondary provider. It comes from primary providers. It comes from church members. None of you are primary practitioners. All of you are secondary practitioners. Church members are the largest group of primary health evangelists. You are secondary, and you're secondary because you're more highly educated, and you have an accurate knowledge of science. You are more perceptive and articulate than the average church member. You are a better organizer, and you're better managers. So the secondary health evangelists are dentists, physicians, nurses, and other practitioners. So who are tertiary health evangelists? Well, they are your research scientists that give you the data, theologians that 
help you refine the spiritual message, data diggers who can go through your data and show you how good your program is, media experts that show you how to make nice slides and uh, who help put color into the program, designers, etc. And lastly, I want to talk about the message. Is it just scientific or is it spiritual? Is it a blend? Is it sequential or what? So what is the health evangelism message? Well, to begin with, we have real confusion because we got two words, health and evangelism. Is it scientific information? Is it the gospel? Which is more important? How do you blend the two? So let's ask the question, which is more important, health or evangelism? And we need to have an answer to that. Health, you get temporary benefits. Everybody Jesus healed eventually died. And so his healing was temporary. You still die. In evangelism, the benefits are eternal. Doesn't matter if you live or die uh, because you'll live forever when Jesus comes. So evangelism is the most important work of the church and evangelism is the most important work of health evangelism. So if you're going to make evangelism the most important part of health evangelism, what does that mean? Well, I think it means that you integrate scripture. You've got to get the Bible in there because that's the word of God and there's power in the word. And you need to promote prayer. You need to put people in touch with God as quickly as possible because behavior change for most people is not possible without a relationship with God. You locate in the local church because that's the Christian's home. And some people say, yeah, but my church has a bad reputation. Well, you better start doing something worthwhile there. You know, and if, if you do a program consistently, the public will come around. I remember I was assigned uh, when I was working for the Chesapeake Conference to work in a small church in Towson, Maryland. And uh, uh, we decided to do a series of, of stop smoking programs. We we're gonna do a bunch of five day plans. And the pastor said, well, let's get the auditorium at the high school. And I said, no, let's use the church. Oh, hey, we're on, a, we're on Joppa Road. Nobody knows how to get here. The freeway goes right over us. No, you know. I said, we're going to do it here. So in the first program, we had 14 smokers come out. And he just, he was livid. He said, see what I told you? It would have been much better to have this someplace else. So I said, well, we got another one scheduled in a month. And I said, we're going to have it right here. <sighs> when will you learn? So the next one, we had about 30 and the next one we had 65, the next one we had 90. And we stopped doing advertising. And the word got around, if you need help, go down to the Seventh Avenue Church. That's what the public needs to know. If you need help, you go to the Seventh Day Adventist Church. And so the best way to get them there is to do something useful there, something that's practical. Now, you need to do it in your office. Don't get me wrong, but that's the secondary place. You need to get people to the church as soon as you can. And uh, then you need to maximize church members because they are the primary practitioners. I tell my helpers that they're more important than I am, and they don't believe me to begin with because they'll say, oh, no, you've got the numbers, you've got the backgrounds, you've got the degrees, you've got the gray hair, everybody's coming to listen to you. But we break up into small groups, and after about three weeks, the church members become arrogant. They come around and say, 
I'm, I know more about my group than you do. And I'll say, praise the Lord. You know, that's your job. That's not my job. I'm a secondary provider. You are the interface with the public. And so I want you to know them better than I do. And speak clearly of God's power. I, I, I do in the, in, the best, in the best way program on the very first night, I'll, I'll say, you know, losing weight's a real struggle and it's in our genes because if you remember in Genesis, how, how did sin come into the world? Eve, she indulged her appetite and she distrusted God and she ate the food. And I said, Christ's first work was for fat people. And they'll say, what? And I'll say, his public ministry began right after his baptism. And he went to the desert and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And the first temptation that the devil brought him was food. Because he knew that indulgence of appetite was in the genes. He knew it was in Jesus' genes. And Jesus was starving. And Jesus elaborated the key to weight loss. He said it in one simple phrase. Man does not live by bread alone but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus was saying, God is more important than food. And I've learned that. So I said, listen, you know, Jesus, you will never be as hungry as Jesus was. And so when you are hungry and you think you can't make it, ask Jesus for help. And Jesus will give it to you. Not because he's the savior of the world, which he is, I want you to understand that he helps you with your appetite. Appetite's your problem. Jesus has been there. He's done that and he will help you. And all you have to do is ask him for help. So you have to integrate scripture and God's power in the talking that you do. So notice these quotes, and we heard some of them last night. The work of health reform connected with the present truth for this time is a power for good. So health reform and the truth for this time have to go together. Neither is the medical missionary work to be divorced from the gospel ministry. When this is done, both are one-sided. Neither is a complete whole. So quit. We, we have people that want to do the health until people are happy, and then we'll give them some evangelism and hope they hang around. Hey, if they didn't learn about God's help in the health part, why should they stick around for your evangelism? It didn't help them with their problem because you never brought it up. So they're not going to hang around for your evangelism either. But if they learn that Jesus is a power that changed their life, they will come to your evangelistic series because you know what you're talking about. I had a lady who quit smoking with God's uh, power. She was uh, a a Jewish lady, but she uh, was not a practicing Jew. And I saw her two or three months later, and she said to me, oh, this is so wonderful how God has helped me quit smoking. And I'm just so thankful to God for his help. You know, I think this is a model that I could apply to other problems in my life. Was she converted? Yes, she would. And I said to her, what a marvelous insight. The entire life of a Christian is learning to Trust God day by day with new problems that come up in your life. And you've learned that in a stop smoking clinic. And you now think you can apply it to other problems. Absolutely. That's how, that's how God works. We are to carry forward in our world gospel medical missionary work. This work means far more than many comprehend. 
the one great work of medical missionaries is to fulfill the commission to carry the gospel of salvation to all parts of the world. So that's what we're supposed to do. So what should secondary practitioners be doing? And there's a little redundancy here with the previous uh, set of slides, but I think you could help select the right program, uh, maybe modify existing programs to maximize their evangelistic potential. And the way you do that is to create small groups and train church members to lead small groups, incorporate Bible study and all your programs. I give all of my people a daily scripture assignment, and it may sound kind of overt at the beginning, but on the second week when people come back, they'll say, oh, the text that you gave us for Wednesday is wonderful. I've written it out. It's on my refrigerator. It's on my cabinet. It's, it's in my kitchen window. And this is just a wonderful promise of God. And to hear that from somebody in the audience is very affirming. And other people then say, oh, I guess I'd better read my Bible too if it has that kind of help in it. Incorporate prayer in all your programs. I encourage people to pray at every meal. And so I give them three points a day for prayer. One for, now they can pray more than that, but I only count three. And I tell people, listen, this is, you know, when you sit down to eat your meal, this is not a prayer of thanksgiving for you because you're entering the valley of the shadow of death. And, and, and you say, Lord, I'm sitting here and I'm about to kill myself. And I really, really need your help. And, you know, if you do that, God will send you help. <laughs> Incorporate contact with church members and do, to, do data collection. And uh, so that's modifying health programs. Educate the pastor and work with him. Educate and mobilize church members to be the interface. Small groups is ideal and then oversee local health evangelism act activities. Be the health expert, educate and inform, be scientifically correct, be spiritual, stay around during small groups, answer questions, invite people to other programs. And this is an important one, rebuke ignorant or fanatic health reformers in the church. This is from Spirit of Prophecy. It is time that something was done that novices may not be allowed to take the field and advocate health reform. Their works and words can be spared, for they do more injury than the most wise and intelligent men with the best influence they can exert can counteract. So we have people in the church who practice reflexology. We had a pastor and his wife up in Washington State who were practicing cranial sacral therapy in the church. There are people that do crystal therapy, aromatherapy. There are essential oils, raw foods, vitamin herbal supplements all kinds of things. All of these are exposed in Edwin Noyes' book called Spiritual Deceptions in Health and Healing. He's an Adventist doctor who has an MPH, and this is a very thorough catalog on all of the quack practices uh, that have crept into society and, in fact, in our church as well. Here's a continuation of the previous thought. It is impossible for the best qualified advocates of health reform to fully relieve the minds of the public from the prejudice received through the wrong course of these extremists and to place the great subject of health reform upon the right basis in the community where these men have figured. So they can ruin health evangelism for the future. And not only that, it ruins it for the gospel. 
says, the door is also closed in a great measure so that unbelievers cannot be reached by the present truth upon the Sabbath and the soon coming of our Savior. The most precious truths are cast aside by the people as unworthy of a hearing. These men are referred to as representatives of health reformers and Sabbath keepers in general, and a great responsibility rests upon those who have thus proved a stumbling block to unbelievers. So one of the things you'll need to do is to suppress, weed out, discourage these fanatical people. Uh, We have them in the church that I go to in Wilmington, and uh, the worst offender recently died. And uh, it's interesting how many church members have bought into it. And as I educate the church week by week by week with health notes in the bulletin, uh, people will frequently come and say, well, now that's a little different than we had learned before. And I'll say, yeah, but this is based on 500,000 people. And if it's root, root, true for 500,000 people, then it's got to be true for you too. And uh, I, it takes a while to correct some of these misconceptions. I think you should interface with traditional evangelism. Whenever Elder Finley has a big series or a conference evangelist, uh, make sure you invite all of your uh, clients to it, and you'd be surprised how many will come. Join other health agencies in the community. I was the president of the Cancer Society in Fort Worth after working up through several of their committees, and I've been active in the Lung Association and Heart Association. And then document and evaluate. I've done this. I track all of the uh, variables. You need to track physical variables. We're good at doing that, blood pressure, weight, cholesterol. But we need to start counting spiritual variables. Prayer, Bible studies, contact with SDA helpers, And then the church uh, has certain variables that they like to count. They like mainly money and baptism. But I like the NAPV. And the NAPV is the non-Adventist person visit. And so you count a non-Adventist every time they come through the door. And you add them all up. And uh, health programs generate NAVPs, not baptisms directly. So when the conference asked me, how many baptisms did you have? I'll say, well, in the last program that we had, we generated 1,735 non-Adventist person visits. These are non-Adventists who came through the door of the church. How many of those people did you baptize? I got them there. And it helps them understand that there is a process that leads to baptism. And getting them in the door is one thing. Introducing them to God is one thing. Getting them to read the Bible and pray is another thing. But when it comes to baptism, we're just the right arm. We open the door. They've got to do their part. So don't ask me about baptisms. If you ask me about baptisms, I'll talk to you about NAPVs. Okay, share and publish. So once you get good data, you need to... Tell us about it. And so for more details and suggestions, read my book, The Principles and Practice of Health Evangelism. It's about a year and a half old now. And that's the end of my lecture. Thank you all very much. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.